Breathe. 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 Uh-huh. Oh. Ow. You want the other nostril too? No, it's okay. <laughs> Whew. Okay. I will give you a few moments. So how was it? On a scale of one to ten, ten being the most painful. Oh, I'd probably put it at like a five or a six, maybe. Five or six. Yeah, it was like a like a sharp punch in the face. Not too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I just snorted a line of wasabi or something. Just... <laughs> and what about the internal state? <clears throat> I mean, it. Uh, <laughs> it's. I don't know if it quieted everything else. It was definitely louder than everything else. But everything else is quieter by comparison. It's uh, it's got an urgency to it. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, that's the point, right? To yeah. really <clears throat> get your awareness to be so high to the internal, the phys- the physical sensations, so loud such that your internal chatter gets quieter by comparison. Yeah. As an example, right? So welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to get yeah, you here. What a warm welcome it was. <laughs> um, so I have Nick Lavers with me today, and Nick is one of my favorite people to yeah, speak to. He's someone who is the, the thing that I admire uh, about Nick the most is his curiosity, his capacity to just go wherever the conversation takes us. Uh, it could be something as esoteric as, you know, we can kind of get into that a little bit. You guys will see, right? But we'll get into these esoteric conversations about uh, really the, the meaning of life, you know, for a good two hours. You know, just kind of on and on and on. It's a, um, it's a, not only have the curiosity, but also has the, the, the capacity, the, the, the mind, the mental capacity to be able to, to hold a lot of different perspectives. So welcome, Nick. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, so the, and let me start off by kind of asking this question. And this is the question I start off with every conversation. What are some of the pivotal moments that you've experienced that made you the person that you are today as a person and as a man? Wow. Um, I don't know. I think the first thing that probably comes to mind would be there was a moment in college where towards the end for the last year or so I was having a real real problem with like imposter syndrome you know I'm there and I'm studying physics and I get this feeling and I think a lot of people get the feeling of like I don't belong here everybody's so much smarter than me I'm not gonna be able to figure it out blah 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 like I'm never gonna make it I should just give up all this stuff that just kind of swirls around your head when if you're not talking to people it kind of feels like they know what's going on and you assume that they're way ahead of you or whatever right and I had this lab class that was really intense where we're doing all these different sort of really involved like real physics experiments we're doing quantum entanglement stuff we've got lasers we've got all kinds of things going on right and the trouble with this class is that they kind of throw you in the deep end you know so whereas all the other classes you kind of have it 
they, they kind of give you step by step, this is the stuff that you need to know, this is what we're going to be tested on, and then this class they throw you in the deep end, and these are open-ended questions, some of which aren't even totally answered, and you're kind of meant to just explore. And if you're not used to that, if you're used to just being a student all the time and like trying to find the right answer, it's very disorienting, right? And especially if you're already feeling like you don't know who you are, you don't know if you've got, quite got yourself figured out, you don't know if you belong here, it's, it's frightening. Right? And so I had this one lab where nothing I was doing was making any sense. The results didn't add up. It didn't seem to line up with the model it was supposed to line up to. I was looking at my results and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm so confused. And I was like freaking out. And I had to go do this oral report and go like talk to the professor, right? And the professors in this class, they're like, by design, they're like brutal, right? They're not friendly. They're not nice. They're just coming at you with any kind of challenge and there any, anything you say they're going to challenge you on it and push you on it right and so I'm like terrified because I'm like I have no idea what's going on this doesn't make any sense right and I go up there and I almost didn't go like I was like in such a bad place at this point in my life that I was just like maybe I should just not even go there's no point right and so I forced myself to go and I went and you know gave this oral report and explained all the stuff and got to this part and I was like and then this part this doesn't make any sense and I kind of walked all through it and it's like see the reason this doesn't make sense is because if you take it like this and if you treat it like this model you'll see the probability of it going through here is like 10 to the minus 100 or something so it's like there's no way this ever happens and the professor kind of sat there and went oh never actually seen that treated before that's a really interesting point so then it's got to be some other mechanism and I'm sitting there like I thought I was totally missing the point and here I was having having had this new insight that nobody else had had and like a lot of times because I did well in school and I sort of developed this thing where like praise would kind of roll off me like I had this feeling like whenever somebody said something nice about me it was like it doesn't count they're just being nice I'm just charismatic enough and people are trying to like protect me or whatever and I always felt like my accomplishments didn't count and my failures were the only thing that counted you know as soon as I achieve something I take it for granted mm. right and then but then whenever something goes wrong, that's like a reflection of true me for some reason, mm. right? And this was like the first time in my life where I was getting praise from somebody that I had no other excuse, right? It wasn't like this guy is being nice to me. It's not like hey, his job is to be mean to me. And he's come up with this thing anyway. And that really like fixed me in that one moment. And it made me realize how stupid I'd been being about all of it for like a long time. Mm. I think that's probably like when you say like the pivotal moments in my life, I think that probably is maybe the single most pivotal, pivotal moment in my entire life. Because that was the moment where I really ran out of excuses to like recognize what I was capable of. I ran out of excuses to look at myself and say, I can do whatever I want, I'm a capable person, and I don't need to try to find narratives to justify it or to, to disprove it, right? I'm, I'm capable of whatever I think I'm capable of. And that was the moment where I really kind of found that. And it was really, in, in a lot of ways, it was the beginning of my life. No, I mean, it's such a beautiful story, by the way. Thanks for sharing. <clears throat> but you kind of skip forward, <clears throat> excuse me, you, you kind of skip forward quite quickly, because it wasn't, I mean, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, in that moment, it's like, oh, this is a new, interesting way of looking at it. I never thought of it before. Was it seriously in that moment you went from zero to one? You go, like, oh, I can offer something of value. I mean, failure is in the failure, like, it, or is it like a, a little progression? You know, over time, then you're like, oh yeah, you know, actually, in that moment, that was a pivotal moment. It was a start of a thing, and or was it literally like a light switch? I mean, it was. I mean, it wasn't entirely a light switch, but it was very much that day. Because I, I went in and I had that presentation and then I walked out and I was just kind of, 
I don't know, I felt changed walking out of it, you know, and I was kind of dealing with it the whole rest of the day, like kind of sorting through it and figuring it out. And it's like, yeah, it, it didn't completely change, right? It was, it was the beginning though. It was the beginning of a process of me recognizing it and of me being able to actually take seriously the idea that I can do whatever I want, that I can, that I'm capable of achieving things if I set my mind to it, right? That's not just like, whereas before that, that was a sentence in my head, but it was just something people said. It sounded like something people tell you when they give you a participation trophy. You know, it's the kind of thing that you can just dismiss. Mm. And after that, like, that's when the statement started to have reality for me. Mm. And it was, yeah, like you said, it's, it's a foundation of something that was continually growing. And it's something that I'm still working on today. I mean, I still have trouble, you know, you still kind of go in these cycles and you get down on yourself and whatever. But, like, I have a foundation now. I have something to go back to and I've built upon it since and I'm able to look at my accomplishments and recognize them, mm. whereas I think previously I wasn't really able to do that. And I think that's something that, that a lot of people do, right? Is like, it's so easy to, when you achieve something, like you say, oh, I could do that, oh, that doesn't count. And then you're looking at somebody else and saying, oh, maybe I can do this, but what would really be something is if I could do that. That's how I know that I'm not the real The Michael person. Phelps, the Michael Jordan, yeah, the Kobe yeah. Bryant, or yeah. whatever. Or even people, people that you life. know who are better than you at some other thing, right? Mm. You can be good at whatever thing you're good at, but from your perspective, that's easy because you've done it, so it like doesn't count. Like you don't. I feel like it's it's a lot easier to look at other people and think, "Wow, that's amazing." And it's so hard to look at yourself and really genuinely be impressed. Mm. Like, so would you say that it's kind of like a muscle? Like in that moment, you discover this particular muscle. You had awareness, and now then, you know, after that, you start to iterate about every time you push through some something difficult the word you, you were pushed to the wall i don't know what the american expression is right you were pushed to the to, to your limit and whether you break through it or not that's besides the point but you are at your limit mm -hmm. and after do that over and over again you start to exercise that muscle is that i don't want to put words in your mouth but is that is that kind of like how the iteration I mean, I think, process i think that's definitely one way of saying it is like there's a new it's like this new like kind of mental muscle, it's a new kind of paradigm, a new idea, this new kind of lens that you can use to look at the world. Something that previously maybe I just dismissed and thought of as not real, and so I would never use it. And so, but I think I think you're right that the more you look at the world in that way, the more you can kind of strengthen your sense that that has a real truth to it, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of the difference between, right? It's easy to know something intellectually and not follow it in practice, right? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what it is. I feel like there's like you can carry around all this wisdom or like quotes that you've heard that you know are true, you know, but they're not, they're not things that you live by, mm. right? And then maybe there'll be a moment where it'll really suddenly ring true. And now suddenly this is an idea that you can really lean on in your life. Mm. And the more you do that and the more you use that idea to interpret the events around you, the stronger it becomes. Right? I mean, that's, it's the same way like you hear your parents say stuff when you're a kid and you're like, what are they talking about? And then it's years later that you go, wow, that was actually really wise. I didn't get it. And the reason was because you didn't have any experience to attach to it. Mm. Right? And so I think that's, that's, that's sort of what you're saying, right? Is you got this, this experience, this sort of wisdom platform is like this muscle and it gets stronger and stronger. Okay, so now you know what you know now, right? You, that was the first pivotal moment. We can certainly go to you know, second pivotal moment, et cetera, but I want to go a little bit deeper on that. So knowing what you know now, do you think that could be duplicated? Let's say you don't have any kid right now, but let's say you, know, let, you wanted to instill that. Mm -hmm. right? You want to introduce that idea. Maybe not to your kid, maybe to your, to your lover or your employee or your, your whatever, right? Whoever that you care about that you want to, to do this. Do you think that could be duplicated, that moment? Mm -hmm. Could be facilitated? For that specific idea or for any idea in general? Uh, for that specific moment that you experience, you know, doing the, what are they, 
the quantum entanglement experiment, mm -hmm. the, the difficult professors, that moment, can that, can that moment be duplicated for others? Yeah, I don't know, that's an interesting question. I think that, I don't know, it's like, yeah, because the fundamental problem is that you need to have, first you need to have this idea that you sort of know on some level but don't really trust. And then there needs to be this event that really makes that What real do you know free. on some level? You know on some level that if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish stuff. That's an idea you're familiar with. It's an idea you've heard. People say, you know, it's like the, it's the moral of like half the movies that get made that you just have to believe in yourself and you can do it. You know, it's like such a common idea that it's like kind of trite and Some level almost. of self-confidence yeah. that you can do something if you put your yeah. mind to it. Well, just the, just the knowledge that that's a thing that people think and it may or may not be true. Right? Because it's easy to look at things that you do and say like, why didn't I succeed at this? Is it because I didn't believe hard enough? Mm -hmm. Or is it because I fundamentally wasn't capable of it for some other reason? Mm -hmm. Right? And so you can always look at something and say, maybe I just didn't believe hard enough. Mm -hmm. Right? And it's like, in what cases is that actually true? Right? right? And if you're someone who is having, who's struggling, right? In one sense, it can be very empowering to say you just need to believe in yourself to do it. But in another way, depending on your state of mind, it can be kind of downhearted. Uh, it can be disheartening, right? To feel mm -hmm. like, like, oh, it's my fault. There's something wrong with me and my inability to believe in myself in this kind of self-sustaining loop, mm -hmm. right? But I think the fundamental question that you seem to be asking, if, if I understand right, is like, how can you make wisdom real for people? Can you do that on purpose? Right. right? Facilitated, simulated, in some kind of way, artificial way, yeah. rather than serendipity or accidental. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I feel like the, the only way that I could think of for something like that is kind of further just self-introspection. Like I think the practice of meditation is a good way to help you kind of break down and take a look at, kind of take stock of all the different narratives that you have going on and figure out what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And I think actually the fact that I was that I was practicing meditation at that point in my life kind of helped me grasp onto this and make more sense of it. Mm. And whereas in other cases or without that, I may have just dismissed it as like an anomaly. Mm. But I think the problem of trying to manufacture these aha moments, that's a difficult one. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Because yeah, so for the specific case of trying to prove that all you have to do is believe in yourself, right? How could you How could you teach someone that or make that real for someone if they didn't? They didn't know it otherwise. I don't know. I mean, I guess what? You could present them with some kind of a challenge and then they either overcome it or they don't. And then, I don't know. I mean, I asked this question because it is a tough one because, yeah. you know, let's say using the parent-child relationship as an example, you don't want them to see them experience pain. Mm -hmm. And this is also such a critical skill to not to dismiss pain, because pain is an important aspect of the growth process, right? But how do you, how do you give it to them without, the, how do you actually help them embody that? How do you foster the process while yeah. minimizing unnecessary pain, as an example? Because as you can imagine, this pressure of achieving, uh, we, t we talked about it time and again, is such a heavy one, especially for people who have uh, conventionally be good mm -hmm. at achieving right and all of a sudden they lose so they'll achieve the outcome they want yeah. the world crumbles now yeah. right that resiliency is an important skill to remember that hey you know this is actually ultimately 
you fail at something doesn't mean you as a human being fail. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the problem I had because like, you know, in school as a younger kid, I was a pretty high achiever. And I think what happened was I became very attached to the external validation that the achievement brought. And I didn't really connect that sense of accomplishment to the actual effort that I put in, mm. right? And so I didn't, so on a deep level, I don't think I learned the lesson of like, put in effort and try your best and that's what's gonna get you there, right? It was more like this feeling like my success is a reflection of something magical that I have intrinsically. And mm. then when I got to a point a few years into college where suddenly everything was much more difficult, right? And things weren't just magically happening and I, didn't have the habits to like put in the effort. I didn't have the study habits because I'd been able to kind of coast through a lot of yeah. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it just, the whole thing, like you said, it just crumbled apart. And like, I just kind of spiraled because I didn't know what to do. My identity was built on other stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, I think in my case, at least it was, it was that I was very much attached to the external validation rather than the internal motivation. And so learning to switch that was very difficult for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, yeah, I don't know. So I guess that's, I mean, I think that probably has something to do with the, the practice of like participation trophies and telling people to try their hardest and all that. And I think that's all super valuable, like trying to teach kids like your, your effort is more important, your dedication is more important than the outcome, right? The idea that the outcome is a product of a mixture of both your dedication and effort and your luck. And you can't control your luck, but you can control your dedication. And that's why it doesn't matter whether you win, it matters whether you did your best. That's what's gonna carry you in the world. So, so that's actually an interesting concept. So you, if I'm hearing you right, you're actually a proponent of these participation trophies. No, absolutely. You are? Yeah, okay, definitely. So say a little bit more about that, because uh, some school of thought would say, why the hell are you giving an eighth place trophy to this child or whoever? You are, I don't know what they're, yeah, you're celebrating mediocrity. Right, right? exactly. There exactly. you go. Right. So that's, that's yeah. one way to look at it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how the, would you the argument is that you're devaluing the trophies that you give to the winners because you're giving everybody trophies. Right. right? If everyone's a winner, then no one's a winner. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think that's, I think that's crazy. Like number one, like it's not like giving all the kids participation trophies and the winning kid, the winning participation trophy means the kids can't figure out who won. Like the kids know who won. They're not going to be like, oh, everyone got a trophy. They're all the same. No, the kids know that person won. Most of the kids think the participation trophies are bullshit and they take the participation trophy and they don't, they, they don't feel like they, they don't didn't. value it. They it's don't value it. Yeah. yeah. But so I don't, so I don't think the argument that the participation trophies water down the actual like victory trophies really holds water at all. I don't think that makes any sense. But I think that the idea, if you can really, and it's tough, but I think the idea that, that your effort is what matters and the understanding that fundamentally the outcome is not under your control, but mm -hmm. your effort is under your control, mm -hmm. that's super important. So but I don't think participation trophies are enough, right? Because like most kids are gonna dismiss it out of hand, mm -hmm. right? And that's because there's an assumption that runs the other way that you find in you know most movies and books and just common culture, which is that what you achieve matters, what you achieve is a reflection of who you are and what you put in. Mm -hmm. And I think it has to do with really the kind of individualistic culture that we live in where, and the, the idea of like meritocracy is the idea that you have total control over your own destiny, mm -hmm. right? And baked into that is some kind of sinister ideas, right? There's okay, a, say more about that. Yeah, so the idea really, like if you, if you buy the idea that like, that 
that life in modern America is a meritocracy and that anybody can achieve anything, anybody can become a millionaire. The American dream. The American right. dream, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you really take that to its logical conclusion, then what you're saying is number one, anybody who's wealthy and successful has earned that. They mm -hmm. deserve it. Mm -hmm. Right? And therefore anybody who is poor and struggling they also they deserve also deserve that. Right. Right? And that's number one extremely unempathetic and number two just objectively not true mm. right i mean you can if if you look at the process that people go through for success and failure it's it, there's a tremendous amount of luck involved mm. right and by the way the success and failure we're talking monetary terms yeah monetary terms for, yeah. So for, for simplicity purposes yeah we're talking about exactly yeah right. there's many metrics of success right, right. and you can yeah we can go down that rather hole too, yeah but like for the for the sake of yeah this but if we're talking about economic success sort of the broadest most simplistic cultural understanding of success mm -hmm. Right? We say that economically successful people earned it, but that implies that economically unsuccessful people also earned that. Mm -hmm. right? And it's just not true. Right. Right? Like, it's true that if you work harder, you have a better chance of succeeding. Probabilistic than you, outcome. Yeah, right. but it's, it's probabilistic. Right? And so the idea of the participation trophy, I think, fundamentally is a recognition of that idea. A recognition of the idea that, yeah, if you want a seat at the table for success, you're better off if you try your best. If you don't try, you could still succeed. Right? Some people succeed by not trying at all. Right? Mm. It happens. But your odds are a lot better if you do your best. So I think that actually is the context that's what's, what's missing when they give out the participation trophy. Mm -hmm. Because they don't actually articulate the intention right. behind it. They're just like, here you go, eighth place trophy. Exactly. And people are like, what the heck? This is is, you're celebrating. Right, it's stupid. You're, you're yeah. celebrating. Mediocrity. I mean, even the kids think it's stupid, right? right? Because they're getting the opposite message from basically every other source that they have. Correct. Right. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. And I think also the, the, the communication of this context is intention is more important than the symbol yeah. of participation trophy or whatever, this this little badge, you know, for yeah. this little sticker that you got for yeah. for for trying your hardest. Yeah, yeah. recognize it. Anyway. <clears throat> so beautiful. So appreciate this. Second pivotal moments in your life, if you have any. Second you remember. How many times do I have to pivot? All right. Um <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that's that's probably the biggest one for me. I think that's that's still the trajectory that I'm on is spending more time trying to celebrate my achievements and less time focusing on my perceived failures. Right? Mm -hmm. It's something that I'm still working on every day because there's still sort of the 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 sort of baseline or the background noise is always like, "Oh, why didn't you do this? Oh, why aren't you doing better at this? Oh, look at him. He's better than you at that." blah blah blah. And it's it's so easy to get caught up in that. That's still like the default state and it still takes effort to remind myself that I've achieved a lot that I'm capable of a lot right and that I'm intrinsically capable of doing anything that I want to do mm -hmm. right but it still takes effort to maintain that narrative mm -hmm. right that hasn't become the background but it has but that idea and that new narrative it has strength now that it didn't have before that pivotal moment right mm -hmm. it's something that that it takes effort to maintain but it doesn't immediately wash away under the force of all the negativity like it used to Right? Because I have, I have that kernel of reality, and from that I was able to build more things and see more aspects of my life in this more healthy light. Mm -hmm. right? So I think, this is, I think that I'm still sort of on this direction. And, and can you unpack a little bit about your definition of success and failure? Is it, once again, actually, let me, answer, let me have you answer that question before I kind of... All right, what is success to, and failure? Right, for you, for yeah. Nick Labors. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, and when I'm feeling negative, right, success is just all the stuff that everybody else has done. That's success, right? The real answer is that success is hundreds of thousands of different possible metrics, 
right? And when you're being unreasonable, you're looking at all the ones that you don't measure up to. And when you're being more reasonable, you're looking at the things that you are measuring up to also. And when you're being even more reasonable, you're looking at none of them and realizing whoa, whoa, like- whoa, back up. That was too fast for me. Okay. Back up one sentence. So say that one more time a little bit slower. All right, so when you're not being very reasonable, you're taking a look only at all of the metrics of success that you do not measure up to, mm. right? All the things all that the everybody gaps. else, all the gaps, everything that you're missing, right? right? If you're being a little bit more reasonable, you can simultaneously look at the ones that you're not living up to, but also look at the ones that you are living up to. Mm. And that reminds you not to pay too much heed to all the ones that you're not Correct. living up to. Right. And then if you're being even more reasonable, you can see that there's so many more metrics and that you don't need to look really at any of them. That mm. success is, I think, the idea of being able to accept yourself. Like I think, I think step one of success is really just giving up on the idea of success. Of thinking, step one. Yeah, step one is just give up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I mean that seriously. Because I think that the first step to really being able to live your life freely is to stop feeling like there's a score, is to stop feeling like there's some objective or meaningful way of measuring yourself against anybody else or against yourself or against the universe, right? The first recognition is that you are like a beautiful, unique object crafted by the universe and you're just as much an expression of universal beauty as anything else in the you're world. You're a unique snowflake. You're, you're a unique snowflake. You have just as much right to exist that your perceived successes, your perceived flaws, all of these things are part of your beauty, right? You wouldn't look at a cloud and say like, that, that's a shitty cloud. <laughs> look how ugly that cloud is, right? It doesn't make any sense. Why right. would you look at yourself like that? Both of you are a, just expressions of the forces of nature that crafted you, of all the surroundings, all the circumstances, everything like that. You're, 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 you're a pure expression of being as much as anything else. Okay. Right? So that's, that's step that's one. That's a baseline, right? Okay. That's the baseline. Mm -hmm. And step two is, okay, now I can relax a little bit, mm. right? I'm not trying to win this game. I'm not trying to score. Right? And now I can play the game. I can pick a metric, but I can remember that I picked it. Right. Right? That it's, it's, that it's the game that you made up. Yeah, it's not me trying to figure out right. what game the real game is. You know, trying to win the real thing. And all the people who really know what's up, this is the game they're playing. I need right. to figure out what all those people are doing and win at that game. Like, that's insane. Where are all the cool, cool kids are? Yeah, well, what, what are all the cool kids doing? Exactly. Right. Right. Like, the first step is realize it's, it's all in your head and then decide what to do, right? Mm. I mean, I think actually a game is a perfect word for it because if you think about, if you sit down to play a game, like let's say a board game, right? What is the goal of the game and what is the point of the game, mm. right? The goal of the game is to win, mm. right? You wanna win whatever the game is, you wanna get the most points, you wanna do the most things, whatever, it's clearly defined. But that's not the point of the game, right? If you sit down and you play the game and you didn't win, have you gotten nothing out of the game? Did you waste your time? Mm. Obviously not, right? People come together and they have a good time. The point of the game is to give you something interesting to do, is to give you something that you can get a rich experience out of, whether it's joy or fear or anger or excitement, you can get all some sorts of- Some kind of, of peak experience. Right, some kind of experiences, you're getting something out of it. And so if you play the game, right, you can achieve the goal and miss the point. If you win the game and you have a terrible experience because you were so fixated on the game, on winning, that you didn't have any fun. Mm. Right? Then you've achieved the goal and you've missed the point. Mm. Right? Similarly, if you, look at, if you look at the game and you go, oh, well, it's just a game, the goal doesn't matter, so I can do whatever I want. You don't try to win, you're just like moving around the board randomly, not even playing. <laughs> like, you're also <laughs> missing the point. Like, that's you just wasting your time, right? Mm. So I think the goal is important, but the goal isn't the point. Mm. And you don't want to confuse the goal and the point. Mm. The goal is to give you something to do, but you choose the goal, you opt in, and then you do it because 
because it's fun, because you're enjoying it, because it gives you highs and lows, it gives you a life, mm. right? Mm. And so you pick your game, but if you forget that it's a game, that's when you start to torture yourself, mm. right? You start to be, you start to terrify yourself with the prospect that you're not gonna win, or torment yourself with the idea you're, you know, you're not gonna win, or you're like, you're on your way to victory and you're like terrified of losing your whatever score you perceive that you have, and it's, it's crazy. Right? You can take good things and torture yourself with them if you're afraid you're going to lose them. You can take bad things and torture yourself with them. And it's like, stop it. Mm. You know? just, just enjoy yourself a little bit if you just let go. Mm. So that's why I say step one is give up. And that's the step I'm currently working on. Yeah, right. Yeah. Kind of what they say in meditation, right? Um, the beginning of meditation is to be aware of your breath. Mm -hmm. and, and those of you that have actually tried counting your breath or be aware of your breath, you soon realize it's very much like training a puppy. Your attention is constantly going away. You're like, oh, God damn it, I gotta go back to yeah. <laughs> counting my breath again, I starting know. from zero and then one, two, three, and then, I mean, at least that's my experience. I can count to like 17, and I realize, like, oh, I stopped yeah. being present to my breath, and I always, it's a uh, very, very Yeah, 10 breaths is just an eternity. You're like, how do I ever breathe? This takes so <laughs> long. It's unreal. It is difficult. So, but, but tactically speaking, right? So this is a intellectual conversation, philosophical in nature. <clears throat> so we are in a comfortable, you know, situation financially, and you know we have water, and you know we're comfortable. Mm -hmm. We're fortunate to, to do that. However, when push comes to shove, the real test is uh, when rent money is on the table, mm -hmm. right? When something of significant stakes is uh, is at stake, right? So. So then, then what do you do? Then what do you, how do you remember that this ultimately is a game that I, that you have chosen rather than, well, then, you know, but the reality also is that your rent money or whatever money, whatever <clears throat> emotional high stakes is, is at stake. How do yeah. you then manage that? <clears throat> well, it's hard, right? I mean, that's the answer. It's hard to remember that it's a game, right? And I think that <clears throat> it's easy to misinterpret this viewpoint as thinking that if you're suffering and you're not having a good time that it's your fault because you're paying too much attention or you're grabbing on too much but that's not true either right because everything you do it's it's part of it right it's part of your cloud shape right so there's nothing there's nothing that you do that you should blame yourself for right there's there's you can try to improve yourself and you can try to go in a particular direction but I think fundamentally you need to recognize that everything you do is on a certain level fundamentally perfect. And so if you're struggling and you're miserable, like just be struggling and miserable. You don't need to then blame yourself for being miserable about struggling. You don't need to add additional suffering, exactly. additional pain because yeah. I should or you should or you should not have done this in X, Y, and Z. Exactly, yeah. And it's also not saying like you have no you have no real reason to be upset like just calm down like if you're starving or something like that your problems will just evaporate if you meditate or something and it's like on some level in a very extreme sense maybe that's true right but it's it's not it's it's much more it's it's meant to be an empathetic sort of viewpoint right that you see that it's it's people that it's a mental trap that you fall into mm. right because ultimately right if you look at like the extreme buddhist monks and stuff these are people who they can they've reached a state where they can die and they don't care right people who no hold on do they not care or do they do they not care or, or they're like at peace with it you know like you see the people the people the buddhist monks who like lit themselves on fire right, right. and didn't scream or anything because they're 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 completely there they're just they're ready for it they're you know it's it's a level of 
they're not they're not concerned about the outcome for their body, right? Mm. They've sort of stepped out and they see themselves as just one expression of the entire universe, mm. right? And so they can say, well, sure, this little me is suffering, but it's just one part of a giant universe. Mm. But that's, and I think that's true, and I think that's in some sense like a right perspective or maybe a healthy perspective, mm. but it's not something that most people are gonna be able to achieve and it's not something that you should expect of yourself or of anyone, mm. right? And so I don't think it's fair to try to blame somebody for their own suffering if they're in a negative situation. It's not like, oh, just have a positive attitude, you know? You right. what's wrong your, with you? How smile come? your way out of it. Like that's right. exactly not the idea, mm. right? Because that's just crazy, and it's that's also just an extremely unempathetic viewpoint. It's like, well, if you have problems, you just need to, you know, buck up. You right. know, it's like that's that's not how it works. Mm. Yeah, one of the things I really admire about you is your ability to really relate to anyone. Right, you're so likable. It's, it's kind of annoying <laughs> sometimes, right? Um, how do you how do you like? Can you unpack that for me a little bit? Was it like a conscientious thing that you do as a way to be more empathetic towards people? Like, how did you become so well, goddamn likable? Um, well, first of all, thank you. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think that. So I think a big part of it was I went to a very small middle school. So I went when I went from sixth grade to seventh grade. We went to a new middle school that had just been constructed, and there were like no kids there. Right? And because it had just been built, no 8th graders were there because why would they move to a school where they were only going to be for a year? So the 7th grade class was number one very small and we were top of the heap at the very beginning. And so we, built, we got this very, very quick kind of close-knit family culture because there were only like 40 or 50 of us. Right? And we like ruled the school a year before we should have. And that was really where I came out of my shell, I think, very much socially. Like before that I was like a really, really shy kid. Mm. And this sort of brought me... So you weren't out. always this way. No, I was just terrified of people. Yeah, and I think it's because I was always very sensitive. I was, I was, I've always been very aware of like how people were feeling and how people thought. Mm. Like I remember being like I don't know second grade maybe, and I remember like freaking out to my mom because every time somebody was like sad near me, I would like cry, and if somebody was angry near me, I would like get angry. I was like picking up on them so much <laughs> that it was just yeah, it was really I was like suffering and I was carrying around everyone else's suffering. At least that's what I thought was happening. I don't know what was really going on. I was a kid. But anyway, so that was sort of where I became, started, started to come out of my shell, mm. right? And I think a big thing was when we got to high school, I sort of assumed that because I was like a nerdy math kid that I had no hope of being a popular kid, mm. right? So I just thought, well, I'll just, you know, be myself and see who I can run into and see who I can make friends with. And I was just really fascinated by people because at that time I thought... Like what I really wanted freshman year of high school, like what I, what I really wanted more than anything was to be able to speak every language and meet like everyone in the world, right? And the reason I wanted to do that was I wanted to, I was looking for the meaning of life. I was trying to figure out what it all was. And At I thought, ninth grade. And I, yeah, I was, I, was, I was trying to figure it out. And what I thought was if I could talk to everyone, right? If you could meet everyone and see everyone's perspective and understand everybody's perspective on things, you could sort of, you could sort of squeeze out of all of that or kind of put that all together into some objective perspective of the world. That, right, the, the yeah, unifying theory. Some unifying theory yeah, yeah. that I didn't have access to only because I'd only talked to a small subset of people, right? And so the only limited data. Exactly. Yeah. And so I thought, well, and I really, I really wanted to talk to everyone that I could because I felt like my perspective was really limited and I knew that everyone I talked to 
could, they had a different perspective. They'd see something that I didn't see. They'd think something I didn't think. They'd have done something I'd never done, right? So I wasn't trying to like make friends. I just wanted to know everything about everybody I was with. Anytime I was next to somebody like on a plane or sitting at the bus, I would strike up a conversation because I wanted to, I didn't want to miss any opportunity to learn more about the human condition, about what it was to like be alive, mm. right? And so I was, I was just, just listening to people like crazy. I just asked them about themselves. Right? And I mean, I think that's lesson one of being likable. There's nothing people want to talk about more than themselves. So if you ask them about themselves, they'll just keep going. They'll just keep going and going and going and going. I mean, what am I doing right now? You ask me questions about myself, I'll talk for hours. Right? Right? People love it. Right? And if you smile and nod and agree with them and ask a couple questions that makes it sound like you're paying attention, they'll just keep on going and they'll love it and they'll want to hang out with you again. Right? And that was an accident. I just really, I really genuinely wanted to know like what was, what was everything and I wanted to ask everybody about everything. So I think that was step one, and then after a while, I just sort of, yeah, I just, you know, you kind of learn. I just learned how to, how to talk to people. Well, so I want to actually go in a little bit, a little bit more, mm-hmm. because you kind of just skip like a few steps ahead from like <laughs> okay. A to like, oh, I'm not C. Right? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, personally, for me, it's been a process, right? In the beginning, I actually wasn't sensitive at all. If anything, I was totally in my head. Mm-hmm. And if anything, I would say I'm a recovering cerebral person. I'm, I'm getting more aligned with my, with my mind, my body, and my heart, right? My spirit altogether. But in the beginning, it was very mechanistic. I could imitate mm-hmm. people who are empathetic. What they do, how they act, and then they nod. And like, <laughs> yeah. did all of that. But the, the reaction I got is, it wasn't authentic. Like, yeah, they, it's, it's and pretty people, transparent. Right, and people know that. People yeah. are like, you were just being a robot. You yeah, were, you're, you you're pretending to do to be empathetic and curious and and and, and, and all of that. But like, what are you really hiding? Yeah. And so, as soon as they sense that like that inauthenticity, suddenly like they close right down and they get suspicious because they're like, what is this guy trying to get out of me? What is what's right. this guy's plan? Right. Why is he pretending? Right. Yeah. But but that was, that was the best effort I could have made. I didn't know how to do it otherwise because I had no access to right. So mm-hmm. part of the I think an, an, an interesting inquiry is I see a lot of people wanting connection with people. They want it. They want it so bad. I can, I can feel it. Yeah. But they don't know what to do. Yeah. Like what are some of the tactics? Okay, so given that you and I have both gone through the process, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> a little bit different journey. What tactical things can the listeners listening right now who want that to be able to connect with someone, mm-hmm. to be a little bit more charismatic, to no. be a little bit more, I don't know what's where understanding of human beings, you know, what it means to be alive and all of that. The, the intention is there, tactically, yeah. what could they do? I don't know, I mean, it's like you said, it's tough to give a specific piece of advice that on its own isn't going to end up being kind of robotic and transparent, right? But I think that the most important thing, and this is kind of trite, but the most important thing is to kind of be yourself, right? Number one is like calm down and be open and be be authentic, really. Like you just need to sit, I mean, that's what it is. It's, I know that's bad advice, right? But <laughs> right. I know, I know that's I'm what you trying. ask, how do you be authentic? Right. How do right? I be authentic? I yeah, I mean, to. I think, yeah, I mean, I feel like step one is not to try, right? So no, I'm serious, right? It's like you just need to, give up. Yeah, well, no, honestly, it's like, you know, relax a little bit and see what happens if, I don't know, just say what you think and it's not gonna go well at first, 
but you get to practice being yourself and maybe you'll say things that drive people away and you'll you know you'll say mean things but you'll kind of figure it out whereas if you're if you're trying to do it on purpose and you never really come out because you're too afraid then you really if, if you're really trying to get this connection and that's what you really want but you're not willing to open up and kind of trust that it's going to happen then you're always going to come off a little robotic because it comes off too safe and too contained mm. right real connection it requires it requires trust. It requires this authenticity. And a little so, risk taking. It, yeah, it is because mm -hmm. it's fundamentally risky because you're opening you're opening yourself up to judgment. Mm -hmm. And so, if you don't take that first step to open yourself up and show that you're willing to be judged, that you're willing to be a little bit vulnerable, right? Then why would they do that? Mm -hmm. Why would they do that first? If you're closed, but you seem to be trying to get them to open up, now you just seem like you have an agenda because mm -hmm. you're you got your walls up and you're trying to get their walls open without opening yours. Right. That's a very visual, very vivid example. A visual, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 For, for when I, whenever I see people like that, whether it be man or woman, doesn't matter, right? <clears throat> I, I, I feel for them, especially the men, because mm -hmm. I've been there. I, I understand. And it could be very similar to like a platonic relationship, but a lot of times is uh, uh, some kind of romantic intention, right? Yeah. And, uh, and you see it right away. I'm like, oh man, I wish I could help this guy a little bit. So yeah. usually, you know, here's what I do. I, I just go up and, and try to uh, play a little facilitation mm -hmm. and talk about this guy or whatever. And whether or not it works, I don't know. But, you know, for my mind, in, in my mind, you know, uh, I, I made somebody's day a little bit easier. <laughs> so tell me a story about that. How does that go? How did it go? Oh, yeah, how did it go? Uh, what, are, what are your tactics? I'm curious about this. Uh, tactical? Yeah. Well, so I notice, I would notice when, whenever I, I feel that, obviously I don't know this for certain, when, whenever I feel that people are on their first date, mm -hmm. you can kind of tell by the body language. So you're just out and you see some strangers. And some strangers looking. on their first date, a little awkward, mm -hmm. you know, the guy's trying a little bit, you know, making an effort. Bring, Bringing his, bringing his A game. Yeah, sure. And then you can tell, I mean, I could tell that the woman is, is reciprocating and giving an opening. Mm -hmm. But maybe the guy may or may not be getting the message. And that's when I was would walk up and, and, uh, and maybe ask an opening question. Um, so for the man to be able to highlight some of his uh, accomplishments or something like that, to make him look good. Yeah, a little bit, right? In that moment of opportunity, because it's one thing when someone asks you a question, then you share some accomplishments or some trophies or <clears throat> something that you're proud of. So you're just a stranger coming up, crashing these dates. You just show up and start interrogating people on the no, dates. No, 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 no. So I mean, a lot of times it would be like on a hike. Oh, okay. Right, not like at a, at a restaurant. <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm thinking they're, they're sitting in a restaurant, <laughs> no, no, you're no. at the bar, and then you get up from the bar and you walk over there that, yeah. and start grilling the guy. Right, right, right. No, that'd be a little intrusive, okay. right? So it would be serendipitous, you know, grocery okay. store, hiking trails, things like that. Okay. And now I will authentically, right, yeah. make sure that this guy has an, has an opportunity to share mm -hmm. authentically what his... Uh, what makes him uh, as, a, as a man, you know, what, what, uh, what drives him, what's his purpose or things like that as a, as a way to kind of drop a little hint yeah. in his interaction with his date. And what sort of uh, reaction response have you seen from that? Um, a lot of times it's really positive. Yeah. You know, you see the, the play hit, you know, mm -hmm. from, 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 from a date, mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, he'll make a joke or 
he would say something and he would see I would see the um, the the day's lights uh, eyes light up yeah like, oh okay so this is you know I, I gave him an opportunity to show to be a little bit more vulnerable mm -hmm. right so that's really interesting that's cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, well it makes me feel good yeah to do that right well, whether or not any of the outcome again I don't know but <laughs> In that moment, you'll find out if you get invited to the wedding. Uh, right, right. I felt <laughs> like it did something good. Right? Yeah. So, um, so let me ask you this. So you are someone who now is being more or less intuitive about the dynamics of human interactions. Would you say? I think so. Yeah. So when you when you see people interacting, what do you? Let's see. <laughs> How do I articulate this question? When you see people interacting, maybe people are being a little bit awkward. I mean, like, what do you do? What's your natural reaction? Um, for awkwardness? Yeah. Let's say, you know, you join a party, right? You're, let, me, let me actually say in, in maybe ways that I understand. You are kind of like a, you know, a black belt in human, <laughs> okay. human dynamics, Thank right? You. you know, you're a very charismatic guy, you're very intuitive, you can talk, you can receive, you can listen, you can, people can bring anything to you, right? It's a pretty, pretty great skill to have. You see a white belt struggling. <laughs> yeah. So what do you do in that moment? You know, in a crowd or, you know, know, in a party? I mean, I think, it, I think it depends on the circumstance, but if you're talking about like, some kind of awkward or if this conversation seems to be stalling out, right? I think the the quickest thing you can do is lightly make fun of people. I think that's that's the fastest So you make thing. fun of the white belt. Yeah. So no, well you'd make fun of cuz if cuz if something's awkward, right? Mm -hmm. Normally that means that somebody is being very self-conscious about something. Mm. Right? And I think what I found is that in a lot of cases the friendliest thing you can do for somebody who's feeling self-conscious is explicitly make fun of them for the thing that they're feeling self-conscious about, but in such a way that it becomes, it seems ridiculous that they would feel self-conscious about it, right? Mm. And then suddenly they can laugh it off and like everybody feels better. So kind of like uh, Emperor's New Clothes kind of a thing? You're, yeah, the, you're the person who call out the Emperor's yeah. New Clothes? Yeah, like for example... How would you do that with a compassion? Because I would want to do that, mm -hmm. but me would be it's it's a subtle art yeah right right so like the, the first thing that comes to my mind is like for example um like if i'm eating dinner with my girlfriend yeah. right and maybe i brought her some food and she doesn't have a fork right and i see and she kind of kind of softly is like could i get a fork and you can see that she feels like she's imposing for asking for a fork which is silly right mm. obviously she should have a fork i forgot to go get her a fork and so my response is well, excuse me, your highness. And then I go yeah. get the fork and then she laughs it off and suddenly she feels better I see. about having asked for the fork because it's clear that it was ridiculous to feel self-conscious about that. And, if, and really, it's almost always ridiculous to be self-conscious about something. And mm. so if you can find a way to point out how absurd it is and then to, for a moment, make a joke where you live in a world where you're genuinely upset about the thing they're being self-conscious about. Mm. And so it makes it clear that that world doesn't make any sense. Mm. Hence, it's a joke. So in order to recognize that you're joking, they have to also recognize that they have no reason to be self-conscious and it calms them down and it calms everyone else down. So kind of like the improvisational comedy technique, yes and. Like, yes, I'm in your world, yeah. you shouldn't be asking for the fork, and <laughs> yeah. you know, how ridiculous. And I'm extremely upset that, that you would make me go back to the kitchen and get right, you a right, fork. Right. Just eat the food without the fork, what's wrong yeah. with you? That, I, that, that's such a 
beautiful skill to have, right? The yes and, mm-hmm. you know, for, you know, given that we're social animals and this is the, you know, the thing that we do every day, interacting with other people, how do we yes and to everything? Yeah. Uh, tactically, um, oh, actually, you know what? I think now may be a good time to do a little samanga if you're... Oh, sure. All this right. is for your, for your eyes. Oh, really? Yes. Do you have contacts in? No. Okay, great. Are you open for samanga? <laughs> what am I agreeing to exactly? Samanga is basically what you had, but for your eyes. The level of intensity and... Do I do both eyes or just do one eye? Both eyes. Yeah, fuck it. All right. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to lean back? Is that what I want to do? Okay. So lean back and uh, keep your eyes up. And uh, what I'm going to do, so close your eyes. And then I'm going to drop it on top of your eyelid. So don't open it yet. And then you, know, you, can, then you can open it and let it kind of roll around your eyes a little bit. Oh, that's not pleasant at all. Oh, yikes. Oh, why did I agree to this? Oh my God. Whew. Oh, yikes. Breathe. Oh. Hold your attention. Whatever it was before. Breathe. Breathe, 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 breathe. 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 So while you wait, I'll kind of share with you how they use it. So when the uh, Amazonian hunters want to go on a night hunt, this is what they'll do before they go on a hunt. Supposedly it sharpens the vision at night. Mm. So they can actually see or the hunt animals a little bit better. Breathe. When in doubt, breathe. That's pretty good advice. Ooh. Man, I'll have to see how my night vision is. <laughs> okay. So how was that? That was, uh, as promised, more intense than the previous one. It was, yeah. The same thing, but for your eyes. That's a good description. <laughs> What about the internal state? What's happening in your head or... Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely some silence. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So actually, on on the note of intensity, what do you think the role of adversity, intensity, challenges, struggle in someone's growth and development? Especially for a man, given that we're both men speaking about what it means to be a man. Oh, I think that, I mean, I think adversity, I mean, so we were talking before about how most important thing, or rather the only thing that you really have control of in your life that turns into success or your goals is how much effort you put in, mm. right? And that effort is going to be against some sort of adversity, some, some sort of obstacle, right? If there's no obstacle, then there's no effort required. Mm. Right, so I think that the basic idea that 
the only part of your life you have control over is how hard you try and what direction you direct that effort, right? And so in that sense, adversity is required for that, right? I mean, I think that, I think that you can have a fulfilling life without adversity, maybe, probably. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, I think that one way that you can feel good about yourself is overcoming, overcoming problems. Actually, you know what, maybe, maybe you do need adversity. You know, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, you're right, because it's, if, you want to, if you want to set a goal and achieve that goal, right, you're going, to, you're going to have some adversity in between you and that goal, and that's going to sort of give you the amount of satisfaction that you get from achieving the goal, right? And that's sort of, I guess that's sort of what I was talking about with the goal of the game versus the point of the game, is the game gives you some adversity, it gives you something to chew on, it gives you something to do. So in that sense, your life is the the set of all the adversities that you choose to engage with. Hmm. Yeah. So, so question for you, giving that um, thesis, premise rather, <clears throat> what if someone's afraid to make any choice mm-hmm. at all and they essentially, from an outsider perspective, dwindling, you know, mm-hmm. dilly-dallying, right? They're just afraid to make any choice. Yeah. What do you? What could you do to help them? I don't know. I mean, I think that probably depends on the root of the fear, which I would guess if you're afraid of making a big life choice, it's because you feel like you're going to do the wrong thing. You feel like by some metric, you're going to go down the wrong path. You're going to have made some suboptimal decision. And if you knew what all the imaginary cool kids would have done, you would have done this. And you're trying to figure out what like the right, the quote unquote right thing is to do. Right, And so I think that the cure for that is the same. It's recognizing that it fundamentally is your choice, that none of the choices are right or wrong. And that way you can release that and you don't have to worry about choosing the right thing. You can choose what you want, right? I think that's, because the root of the fear is the fear that you're gonna choose wrong, right? And so if you don't, if you don't believe you can choose wrong, then the fear evaporates. I think that's that's what so, I would say. So there's a so let me actually go a little bit differently. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe talk about the same thing but in a different way. There's a word. There's a phrase um, that's being thrown around quite a lot. Peter Pan, mm-hmm. right? Grown man, dilly dallying, not committing to any specific goal per se. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I was thinking about this phrase and I actually didn't really like it at all. On the one hand, I, I, I agree with it, but on the other, I also have an intrinsic feeling of actually not liking it. I agree with it because um, people have such, such potential to go after whatever it is that they want. I actually don't honestly care whatever it is that they want, right? And what I don't, and it's, it was such a missing when I see unfulfilled Potential, whatever you call it, right? People just don't do anything with gift and talent and blessing that they have. But I also don't like this phrase, Peter Pan. Because this, and then what I realized, what I didn't like about it is this, this judgment. Mm-hmm. Like this person should do something with their life. Yeah. And ultimately, I realized that I don't ever want to use that phrase because ultimately, someone else's life. Like, yeah. who am I if this person likes to play a video game? Hell yeah, I mean, go for the video game. But ultimately, you may or may not realize that it may or may not be fulfilling for you. Now, if you become a world-class video game player, then that's the goal that you set for you. Like, hey, go for it. Good for you, right? 
So, so they're realizing, I'm curious from your perspective, the role of um, challenge and also when you see some people outside of you, yourself, not pursuing the goals that, uh, you know, with the blessing and the gifts and talents that they have. What do you, what do, you do with that? So I think, there's, I think there's kind of two parts to this, right? Is like, if you look at someone and you say, this person has so much potential and they're squandering it, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's two possible explanations, right? The first and probably the most common is that this person is aware of their potential and they're afraid of it, or they're afraid of going the wrong way. They're, they're, like you said, they're afraid to make a choice, they're afraid to commit to something because they're worried about doing the wrong thing, right? And then this judgment of this Peter Pan label is yet another judgment, yet another external sort of pressure that I think just compounds and compresses on this fear, mm. right? And I think for somebody who, somebody who has very, who's talented but has this feeling like they owe the world something, mm. right? Then the potential becomes something where it's, maybe you can't live up to it, right? If everybody expects all of these amazing things from you, mm. right? Then it's like, well, it's a lose-lose. Because if I achieve all of this, everyone goes, oh, yeah, see, I knew it. Of course. And then if you don't I achieve it. I knew it 10 it, years ago. If you don't achieve it, then you just lose, mm. right? And it's like, well, fuck that. I'm just going to stay home and play video games, mm. right? So in that sense, it's, it's extremely toxic. I think. And this is just another way that people label each other and try to put pressure and it's another one of these sort of external metrics that if you choose can be very compelling, can be very productive, right? Mm -hmm. If this person chooses for themselves like, this is what I want to do with my life. This is the direction I want to go. Let's see how far I can take this. That's great. But if instead it's, this is what I should be doing with my life and I'm not doing it enough, that's not motivating, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's demotivating, mm -hmm. right? That makes you just want to curl up in a little ball. Right? You so like this is what you owe the world. You should be doing this. And if you don't get this, then you've failed everyone. Right? That's gonna make you just wanna hide. Right? The other possibility is that they've already gone through all this. They've recognized it and they've seen, yeah, sure, I'm amazing at this, but I don't like it that much. I don't wanna do it. I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna do this. I know that I can choose what I wanna do, and I choose to stay home and play video games. Mm -hmm. And that's up to them. That's fine. Right? So I think in either case, you don't want to call them a Peter Pan. I think that's right. useless. But Removing think, that yeah. label altogether. But I think in the former case, you could talk to them and say, hey, you know, you could, there's, there's, there's something productive to be done recognizing that they're trapped in this fear. Mm. And the way out of it isn't this label to try to guilt them into it. That mm. just makes people shut down more, mm -hmm. right? It's to engage with them and to help them see that they don't owe the world anything. Right? That just because they're good at something, it doesn't mean that they have to go out and do this, that they're a bad person if they don't. Right? You give them the freedom to do whatever they want, help them recognize that it's their life and there's no wrong answers. And odds are good they're going to pick the thing they're good at. Right? Mm. Because we tend to like the things we're good at. Mm. And if they feel like, I want to, most people, when they, when they start to relax a little bit and, you, and they really start to look at what they want to do, most people want to do as much as they can to make the world better. Like that's where people typically end up. And if you're awesome at something, then that's whatever that thing is, it's probably your best bet and having a big impact on the world. And so I think to call someone a Peter Pan is to do the exact opposite of what they need, mm. which is to help them realize that it's their life, they don't owe anyone anything. And this is a common theme is that if you let go, you end up doing the thing you were trying so hard to do. Stop mm. trying so hard to force it, just relax 
mm. and it'll happen. It's the same thing. It's, this is with, with, you know, getting your life purpose, with finding your goals. It's the same thing with building an authentic connection with somebody. You have to relax and you have to trust, right? And, but even to say you have to trust is the wrong thing because now you're sitting there trying to relax and trying to trust and that right. doesn't is, work either. Which is uh, right? what's where uh, paradox. It's a paradox, yeah. exactly. I mean, this is, this is, that's sort of the classic Zen paradox is you're trying to not think and now you're thinking about how you don't want to think. You're trying to not desire, so you desire not to desire, right? Mm. And it's like, that's not, you're trying to use your old toolbox to get rid of itself and it's not gonna work, mm. right? You have, to, you have to practice this sort of relaxation and giving up. You have to meditate for no reason at all, mm. which is effortless and extremely difficult. So on the same token, there's this phrase, you know, we made famous by Stan Lee's Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that phrase? Um, I don't think that it's true. You don't think it's true at no. all? No, I mean, I think that, I think that fundamentally you're in charge of your own life, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, fundamentally, I don't think any statement is true, right? Mm -hmm. Any statement that you make about the world is extremely narrow and limiting compared to the richness that is the world, mm -hmm. right? And especially, that's especially true of any value judgment, right? If you make a value judgment about the world, that's your imaginary bullshit that you're putting on other people, mm -hmm. right? And the more other people internalize that, the more damage you're doing to them. Right, And so I think that if you have great potential and you're able to relax a little bit, you're much more likely to use that potential for the good of everyone than if you're being guilted and berated for not using your potential. Because mm. that's just a way to make people feel small and like they can't do it and like nothing they're going to do is enough because they're trying to live up to something that's not real. Mm. So I mean, I think, that there's, I think there's a good intention in there, right? Mm. The idea that if you can do a lot, you should go do a lot. And I think that that's... I think that that's valuable if you can come up with it for yourself, mm. right? That's something that you can use for yourself to motivate yourself to do something. You sure. say, I can do this, and so I choose to sort of follow my calling here, right? Mm. But as soon as you try to use it on anybody other than yourself, sure. right? Now you're just prescribing other people's life choices, sure. right? And you're trying to put them in a box, and you're trying to force them to do what you want them to do. Sure. Right? Well, but, but we're usually our worst critic. Mm -hmm. Right, that internal critical voice would say shit like that, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Like, when great power comes with responsibility, yeah, you're you not measuring up your potential, and you know, look at so and so, Nick Laver, so talented, right? Why aren't you like him, right? Things like that. So, okay, so one of the things I want to take away with people who are listening always is tactical things, right? What are the tactical things that they can use? that you've used as a way to ground yourself, to operate from, from inner power, to ground yourself, and to operate from knowing who you are, from empathy and self-love. Any of those, what kind of disciplines do you have daily or ongoingly as a way to make sure that you come from neutral? Um, I, I don't know that I'd describe myself as really having any disciplines. I think that the closest thing to that would be meditation practice, which is just the practice of trying to be and trying to forget all the nonsense you carry around. And if you do that, you're able to do all sorts of other things in a much healthier way, right? Like if I've, if I've just finished meditating and I'm just recognizing that I'm just this being moving through space and all my memories are just sense inputs, they're made up, everything else is just made up, and I'm just kind of moving through space and watching my brain fire things and watching myself think about things, and it, it takes on this, this intrinsic self-justifying beauty. Everything has it. 
and you don't need to try to evaluate stuff. And then suddenly, you can be brushing your teeth and it's the most beautiful thing in the world. You're, you're loving yourself and the universe. You're, you're, you're paying attention and you do every little detail and every little task with the same sort of intimacy and delicacy with which you might like wash a baby or something. Mm. Like I, I meditated and then go and I do the dishes and I'm just like loving this dish for existing and for like being part of the world. And mm. I'm not thinking about how I'm gonna finish doing the dishes. I'm like so close and I'm right there and every moment of like washing the dish, I'm there and it's at the same speed as where you're meditating and you're counting your breaths where it takes forever, but you're there and you're like loving that moment, mm. right? And if you can do more of that, like it takes a long time, I think, in meditation before you have even a glimpse of that. It takes a very long time. And then suddenly, like, the more you do it, the more it starts to pop up in other areas of your life and you're able to remember, like, I don't, I don't need to be this way. I don't need to torment myself, mm. right? But I don't think that it's easy to prescribe something like that because... Something it, like that as a discipline. As a discipline or mm. any of it because even, so even that, you, it's so easy to fixate on this stuff, right? Mm. Like, so I had this moment, right? I had this experience where I had like a whole weekend where I was like cleaning my house with such intimacy because I felt like I was, I felt like the house was a part of me, the whole universe is a part of me. And so making it clean wasn't a chore. It was a gift that I was giving myself and I really felt mm. that, right? And then a week later, I'm trying to clean my house and I'm trying to like summon that feeling mm. and I just can't. Right? I'm just cleaning and now I don't want to clean and now I'm feeling bad for not being able to summon that feeling and for feeling bad right, about cleaning right. and I'm back. Because like, it's not a cure. Right? Mm. It doesn't make it all go away. It's not like a snap where all of a sudden you're, all of this stuff goes away. And so I think that to try to make it a discipline, a lot of times that ends up just being another thing that you fixate to torment yourself on. Like, oh, I didn't meditate as well today as normal. I'm not doing a great job meditating. My life's going bad. And like, it's, it's, it's just easy to take everything and just weaponize it against yourself mm. so i think that i mean i think a lot of disciplines are going to work and it different things are going to work for different people but i think that meditation as a single thing is probably the most valuable thing i've ever discovered any specific meditation you recommend for anyone that's listening to this um so i originally got interested in meditation after reading uh douglas hofstadter's book uh, girdle escher bach so in that one he talks oh, about slow down maybe perhaps say that again yeah girdle escher bach mm -hmm. uh, the eternal golden braid i think is the subtitle it's this very strange book where he talks about like the, it's it's sort of an intu intuitive exploration of the idea of where consciousness comes from using like mathematical formal systems and also comparing it to like music and escher self-referential drawings and all this stuff but in it he started to describe um, different modes of interpreting the world. He talked about like holism and reductionism and then Zen he offered as like this third alternative as this alternative to logical inquiry, just something I'd never really been exposed to before. And so after I read that, I went and found um, Zen Mind, Beginner Mind by mm. Suzuki mm. and just used that to try to teach myself meditation. And it wasn't really to try to teach myself meditation. It was to try to figure out like, is this Zen thing total bullshit? Is there anything in here? Like the idea of like, not logic or the opposite of logic seems so strange to me and I was like mm -hmm. is this complete nonsense and then you read it and it reads like complete nonsense like all the Zen stuff is like what are you even saying right but working through that book um, I was reading through like a chapter at a time I'd read like a page or two and then try to like summon the state that the book talked about and try meditating and I didn't really realize I was teaching myself meditation I thought I was just like trying to figure out what Zen people are talking about but at the end of the exercise I had 
I was, I was meditating every day or every other day, and I was having some really beautiful like peak experiences, some things where I felt really connected to everyone and connected to the universe, and I felt like I'd left all of my like mental stuff behind. I had moments where, I remember one, I was like sitting on my bedroom floor, and I had this realization that I didn't exist. And I just started to laugh at how absurd it was that I'd ever believed that I existed in the first place. It's one of the most beautiful moments I've ever experienced, mm. right? And that's the sort of thing that you think is the point of meditation until you meditate more after that, and then you find yourself trying to get back to that. And it's like, no, it's always about what's this moment have? Don't mm. try to make it like this. Don't try to make it like that. Because that's just more of you taking these external metrics and saying mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm meditating now, but now I'm not having this washing a baby while washing the dishes experience. Now I'm not having this laughing about not existing experience, right? As soon as you're measuring it against everything else, right, you're getting back in that trap, right? And so I guess that, to answer your question, that was the book that was useful for me was um, Zen Mind, Beginner Mind. That's sort of where I started. And I mean, I honestly haven't done a whole lot of other reading. There's, um, I was reading some talks by Ajishanti, and there were a couple other mm -hmm. books, the titles of which I don't remember. But like, I'm by no means an expert. But I think that the key idea is that you, and this is something they say in Zen all the time, is like, kill your teacher. You don't need a teacher. Why are you asking me Zen questions, right? You have everything you need. Just look at yourself, right? And I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that, right? You can just go and sit in the park and just like look at your brain. And if you're kind of willing to look at it honestly and just kind of let everything else fall away, you'll every single time you sit down, it's different. Every single time you discover something new, and it's, I mean, it's yeah. There's I can't. There's nothing more valuable if you want to understand yourself. If you want to start to get out of all these negative habits that you're in, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. But it's like the first step is recognizing that you're in a bad bad state. The first step is recognizing that you have this negative pattern. Right? And then suddenly you can see it, you can label it, and then you can start to do something about it. It's not mm. like a cure-all, but it's, it's an important first step because if you don't know what's going wrong, if you don't know why nothing makes sense, why you're unhappy, why you're confused about stuff, then what are you going to do? You have no idea what to do next. Right. I think there was a cognitive science research somewhere that says that if you actually put language on the negative emotions that you have, you are able to reduce physiological pain that you experience. Yeah. Right. So similarly, if you can you know, put, a, put a label on whatever state that you're yeah. in, you're able to kind of distance yourself. Name it to tame it. Right. Yeah. right. What about the uh, roles of technology? What I mean, if you can, because you're a technologist, right? A really good one at that. And um, do you think technology is going to make it harder to maintain that level of presence? So do you feel like technology could offer an easier a path, right? To get into that uh, state of tranquility and peace of mind and all that? I mean, I think it's kind of both. Okay. Like, I think that the fact that more and more people now are interested in meditation is not unrelated to the fact that technology has bombarded us with more information and inputs than ever before. Right? The fact that our brains are so noisy now and so, so flooded with information, I think has caused more people to look for the silence. Right? I think that there's definitely a connection there. Right? So I think that's part of it. So just by virtue of being so bad in that way, I think technology can help. And then the question of whether you can use technology to make these states easier, you know, I don't know. I know that like, there are those apps that can help you sort of find 
your meditative state or monitor your brain waves. Those have never worked super well for me. No. But um, I mean, it's it's different for different people, and I'm I'm sure that there's I'm sure that there's going to be good stuff. I'm sure that there's going to be lots of interesting technology because the more you understand the physiology of the brain and the more you connect that to the the sort of meditative states that you want, I think absolutely you're going to find stuff. But I think that I think that technology alone is never going to be the solution. Right, because I think that like technology and the process of science and rationalism, it's all very mental modely. It's all very I have this understanding of the world and I'm trying to figure it out. And the state of meditation and the alternative to that is very much like the devil is in the details. Your understanding of the world is fundamentally flawed, no matter how detailed it is. You're missing the big picture, right? And it's it's just about engaging the present moment and whatever you find on its own terms. And I think that the the sort of mindset that you use to develop technology is very different from that. But mm. I don't think, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think, that, I think that before a technology that really makes meditation or really makes this state more accessible is going to exist, I think there needs to be, or there, there would have to be sort of more widespread engagement in it in the first place. Engaging right? it. Yeah, in, in this meditation practice in this state. Right. I see. So to to do more meditation as a way to understand how a mind works before you can introduce technology as a way to magnify the effect, etc. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think that's basically what I'm saying. Mm. Are there other tools that you've come across that's able to empower people to reach this meditative state, this peace of mind state? The reason I ask is I remember when I first started meditating. Eight minutes of meditation was so painful. Yeah, it's torture. It's yeah. torture. Yeah. I was, and in my mind, I was thinking, why do people put themselves through yeah, this? Yeah, this is the worst. Yeah, that is the worst. <clears throat> then I encountered some good teachers who was able to um, bring analogies and, and things that I actually understand, which makes the journey much easier because now I have benchmarks, now I have analogy, now I have a me- mental understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, how this whole process works. So I'm a huge believer of good tools, good mental tools, good teachers. Um, hence why podcasts like this exist. So it's such that people can model other people's mental models. We're not talking, telling them that this is the truth, but here are some of the mental models, the tools, the processes, the discipline that works for them. So coming back to my original question, are there tools, that you, other tools, that allow people to get into this beautiful meditative state yeah I mean I think for something like this it's really just the more tools the better right because different things are gonna work for different people and they're all gonna kind of find you in a different place right and what works for one person isn't gonna work at all for somebody else so I think that's sort of why I think that you're not gonna start to get a lot of these solutions until there's enough people generating a lot of these different solutions to basically attack people from different angles I see right because you don't know what the barrier is for somebody. People are going to have barriers in all these different dimensions, and each tool is going to help you through a different, a different thing, mm. right? And so if you're using a tool to try to get to meditation, but it's solving a problem that you're not having, and it's not solving the problem that you do have, then it's not going to do any good for you, mm. right? And there are as many dimensions to this as there are dimensions of like the human mind. Like It's, it's just insanity, mm. right? And so I think ultimately the answer is just if you really want to figure out meditation and you are struggling, just keep trying all kinds of different stuff, mm. you know? And the other thing I would say about these tools is that 
they could be very useful for getting you into meditation, but I think most of them are going to have a pretty short shelf life. Mm -hmm. Like in my experience, the stuff that helps me get into the state of meditation, it works once or twice, a couple of sessions, and then all of a sudden it just stops working. Like I've gotten used to it and now, now I'm like expecting something from it or something like that. It's like, oh, I've finally found my meditative silver bullet. And as soon as you think like, oh, I'll just be able to waltz into this state because I got this thing, it's like, well, now it's not going to work. Mm. You know? So I think that having a wide array of them will be useful to get people to that point where they're like, oh, meditation is real. There's something here that's not just me torturing myself, right? There's, there's a little bit more here, but none of them are going to be, this is that thing that gets me into the state every time, mm. right? Except for drugs. Oh yeah? So <laughs> yeah. say more about that. Well, I mean, if you want to get into a state that makes you very aware of the present moment or aware of your senses or whatever, like you can get really stoned. And now no, what? time you can get really stoned. Stoned. Yeah. I see. And now suddenly you're confronted with all of your senses. You're like inevitably bombarded with the present moment. And like mm -hmm. time slows way down because you're getting so much sensory input. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's not, it's not as valuable. I don't think. You don't as think meditation. so? I think it can be. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think in general, it's not, I don't know. I mean, it, again. Say more about that. Actually, it, this is an interesting thing. I'd I, I love to hear your thoughts. I have, a, I have my opinion about this, yeah. but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be valuable. I think it depends on how you approach it, mm -hmm. right? I think if you, and like, I don't smoke a whole lot of pot, but I think if you approach it from a perspective or with particular goals, I think you can achieve certain things. I know I've had experiences where I felt like I was really kind of sorting through a lot of stuff that I hadn't seen before. I was able to look at a lot of my mental baggage from a new perspective, right? Stuff like that. And so I think it can be valuable. Like I said, it's, there's, there's a lot of different tools, right? And I think that if you want to get a sense for what a meditative peak experience is and you haven't been able to achieve it, right? I mean, smoking pot gets you to something that is not extremely dissimilar from a peak meditative experience, except mm -hmm. in a peak meditative experience, you maybe have a little bit more control over mm -hmm. the situation, mm -hmm. right? But again, that's, it's just different ways of exploring your mind is mm -hmm. what I would say. And you're going to get, you're going to get different amounts out of it depending on sort of where you're at and what your goals are and what you're trying to do. Like, I don't think there's very much you can say in generality about that, but I think that if you're trying to explore your mind, then any tools that you're comfortable trying, you should try. Mm. Yeah. My experience is that, um, it really depends on the intention, right? So if you're going with, with anything, whatever it may be without an intention, guess what? That's what you'll get. Whatever happens, happens. Circumstantial. Mm -hmm. Things are going to show up. And ta-da, then that's what you got. But if you go in with a particular intention, our, uh, what's that particular brain? Um, the pattern recognition reticular. Anyways, that particular uh, function in our brain <clears throat> would be essentially hone in Mm -hmm. um, the specific thing that we what we're looking for, you know, to really help us answer the question that we want to ask or fulfill the intention I wanted to have. Uh, anything that we do, whether it be meditation or marijuana, whatever it may be. So, so that's that's my thing. Any yeah. any other tools you wanted to share? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've found one of the things that worked for me for a while was just reading out of a Zen book for a chapter and kind of getting into. A mental state of that and then trying to meditate on the stuff that they were talking about there that kind of gives you some intention right mm -hmm. and I think I think that there's a balance because I think sometimes you want to bring some intention to it and explore a new area other times mm -hmm. you want to just kind of see what's gonna happen sure because I think you can bring too much intention to it and limit it but I think you can 
Yeah, you can kind of strike a balance. Hold on to it too tight. Exactly, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, in a way, it's very much just about letting go, mm. right? I mean, you can, you can say, look, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm not going to expect anything from it, but I am going to try to pay particular attention to this sort of thing. And I think Correct. that's valuable. Right. Right? But you don't want to do it to the extent where you're, like, trying to I move must. in a particular... Because that defeats the purpose. Yeah, right. I agree 100%. So I want to actually move on just to the next question. I'm curious to know about what's your, what's your perspective around communities like who do you surround yourself like who why are your best friends best friends i think that's probably the best way to kind of look at it your best friends or the people that you choose to actively spend time with why are those people in your close circle um yeah i don't know i mean i think that you spend time with the people that i don't know that you get the most out of Right? Okay. You, spend, about that. you spend time with somebody and they you get new perspectives out of them, right? There's it's about a balance between sort of being in harmony and being in dissonance, right? Because if you're too in harmony, you're not getting much out, right? You're just hang you might as well be hanging out with yourself. If you have too much dissonance, then you guys can't agree and you can't hang out. But if you have a if you have a, a nice balance where you're challenging each other, you know, you're surprising each other, but you're also you have enough in common where there's this kind of very efficient mode of communication, right? There's a lot of assumptions that you kind of hold. There's a, there's a lot of shared understanding, but there's also these these disagreement points where you can kind of challenge each other and explore each other's understanding, right? I mean, I think that what I think is so awesome about conversation is you're basically just kind of taking two minds, kind of lining them up with each other one point at a time, trying to see how do they compare over here? How do they compare over here, right? And when you give someone a new idea, you've made a connection because they were they were ready for it, right? They're sort of in a state where they're adjacent to you in this idea and you can move them one step. Whereas if they're way far away, you're not gonna be able to get there. There's gonna be just no communication, right? It's the same thing as when you make a joke, you're able to connect two ideas that were near each other, but not quite near enough to be connected. And you kind of find that and find that way that they're the same in the way that they weren't before. So I think that's, that's what I like about, about hanging out with people is that if you have people that you really like and you think that their minds are interesting, Right? You think that their perspective on the world is interesting, you like the way that they talk, you like the way that they think. That basically means you're spending time with them because you want to absorb more of them. Right? You're basically, as you converse, you're mapping more of your brain onto them and they're mapping more of their brain onto you. Right? And so you choose the people who, whose brains you want. Mm. Right? I mean, basically, you are the sum total of all of your experiences, everything you've been exposed to. Right? And so by choosing the people you hang out with, you're choosing the 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 um the constituents out of which you want to build yourself mm -hmm. right and i think that's that's ultimately what it is so you see somebody and if there's something about them like that you really admire and you're like well i want to hang out more with this person and i want to understand this this worldview that they have or like they they say something and it's it rings true for you but it doesn't feel real like it's hard for you to put that in action one of those things you know intellectually but it's hard to make real and you think if i hang out with this person more and i ask them more about it Right? Maybe I can start to understand where that reality comes from, right? And I can start to map that into my life. Stuff like that. Do you actively look out or look people who disagree with you? Who look sorry. Do you actively look for people who may have an opposite point of view as a way to because part of your purpose in the world is to build that mutual understanding, right? So on the same token of we are the collective of every experience that we have, accurate, which I believe as well. 
I don't personally look out for people who disagree with me. I am curious in about their point of view, but I don't actively look out for them. So I'm curious to know your thoughts. Like, do you find people who are more thinking like you, or do you, or do you actively go out of your way to find people who disagree with you fundamentally? I don't know if I'd say that I go out of my way, but I'm always excited when I encounter somebody who has a very different viewpoint from me mm. to talk to them and to try to figure out like how how do they support that idea? Why do they think this? Right? Because fundamentally, I believe that 90% or more, 100% really fundamentally of all the things I believe are wrong. Right? Okay. They're all wrong. They're just wrong in different extents. And I don't know which ones are extremely wrong and which ones are subtly wrong. Okay. Right? But by talking to more and more people, hopefully I can get an understanding of what are the things that I'm assuming that are complete nonsense. Mm. Right? And if I find somebody that I think seems intelligent and seems like they're together and they have an opinion that's very different from mine, then I want to understand how they got there. Right? I want to understand why do they think this? Where does this come from? How can they, and so if I can challenge them on it and they can support it, right? Then maybe I can learn something, right? Maybe I can look at something in a new way and I haven't mm. before, right? If you start with the assumption that you're wrong about a lot of stuff, right? Then you can hopefully fill yourself in with other people's perspectives and I think it's extremely valuable. That said, there are a lot of people who think things that I don't agree with and I ask them why they think it and the reasons they think it seem dumb to me and it's like, well, I don't want to have this conversation anymore. I see. So, <laughs> you know? so I guess the qualifier is someone who's intelligent and have able to back up what he or she says or believes in. Is yeah, I definitely like want to ask. Them, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? If they're supporting it with things that don't make sense to me or that I don't feel is valid, then it's like, all right, well, let's talk about something else. <laughs> right? I'm, like, I'm not seeking out an argument for the sake of an argument. Yeah, right? Yeah. But if I can have a debate, if I can have a discussion, right, mm. about something that I think is interesting and that they really disagree and they've come to a completely different perspective and I can walk back and see, oh, well, that, okay, that step makes sense. How did you get there? Okay, that makes sense. That step makes sense. How did you get there? And you just walk it back one step at a time and try to figure out what is the nut? What is that fundamental thing that we're not agreeing on? Mm. And where is that coming from? Right? Mm. And is that something that I just assume or is it something that they just assume? Which, which assumption makes more sense if neither of them can be directly supported? Because usually it comes down to some kind of feeling. Going back to the technology question again, do you feel like technology can allow us to speed up that process, accelerate that process, mm -hmm. given that this is part of your purpose in life, right? To, to create or to, to have more mutual understanding. And I don't know, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but I'm curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that the most important obstacle to the process of coming to mutual understanding and of understanding each other's differing opinions is the sort of cultural norm or the sort of cultural feeling that you should already know all the stuff. You should already have all your stuff figured out. And if anybody figures out or points out that you were wrong about something that you said, you should be very embarrassed, right? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of baked into our culture, right? So when, so normally if you challenge someone on something, they're going to want to defend it. They're going to put up walls and they're going to try to, try, to, try to argue their way around it, right? And if their position seems to become more and more untenable, they'll resort to less and less reasonable means to try to defend themselves, yes. right? And I think that's because we, as a culture, we tell people that you're an adult, you should have all your shit figured out by now. Right, so if you're wrong about stuff, it's because you're dumb or or something, or you haven't been doing, or you haven't been doing your responsibility to be informed or something like that. It reflects badly on you. Okay. Right. Instead of the recognition that everybody has taken a different path through the world, has has been exposed to different information, has been exposed to different ideas, 
and everybody's mostly wrong about most of the stuff that they know, right? And so if it could be an effort to try to, if everybody could have the understanding that I need to do my best to figure out the things that I am wrong about because I don't know which ones they are and other people might have a good idea, that would mean that everybody would be more willing to talk to each other about stuff. It's kind of about letting go of this ego, not feeling like opinions are things that reflect on you and more like things that you can replace as needed and kind of feel better about, right? And outside of like, I think the only place where that's, where that's really true is in like the scientific community, right? Where there's at least, at least explicitly, at least like sort of nominally, there's this, there's this value placed on changing your mind, on taking in new evidence and changing your position, right? Whereas in sort of normal, the rest of the world, that's not how, it, that's not how people operate, that's not how people think, and that's not the emotional reaction to changing your mind, hmm. right? If changing your mind is something that you should be shamed for, then people aren't going to be able to have productive discussions because mm. if if two people are having discussion and both of them understand that they would be willing to change their mind if presented with a reasonable argument mm. then you're having a discussion you're having a debate you're having you're having you're having an interesting argument where somebody might change their mind you're going to look you're looking for, you're both looking for the truth together mm. right mm. whereas if you have two people both of whom know that it would be a social um, disaster if they admitted that their position was wrong mm. now you just have two people arguing at each other and throwing whatever defending they can just their defending point each of other view, yeah. exactly mm. and there's there's no point to do that right that doesn't go anywhere mm. right so i think i think it's really a cultural thing and maybe there's some technological way to address that i mean obviously what people think and and what what the cultural norms are have a lot to do with what media they're exposed to right and who they're talking to which can obviously be influenced by technology yeah i, I mean not to not, not, not to deviate on this a little bit but expand on that a little bit more i mean more and more we're seeing in the media people are becoming more and more polarized and they're becoming more and more static about their point of view and the other side who don't believe in their point of view is just stupid yeah right and versus having a discussion trying to discover this truth together yeah um yeah, so I'm actually very curious to know what are some of the tools that we can use to foster this process a little bit more. So, but this is, we're not going to resolve this today. <laughs> yeah. um, any lasting words? If anyone who is still listening, if you have one, you know, last piece of advice for them as a way to be a person, be a successful person, be a successful man in modern times, what would you what would you give a piece of nugget? That you're perfect. You're absolutely perfect. And nothing about you needs to change. You can change whatever you want to, but don't feel like you need to. You're absolutely perfect the way you are. And like you really have to believe that. It's not just, I don't know, hippie nonsense. Like it's really fundamentally true and important. I think that's, that's what I would say. Beautiful way to leave it. Thank you, Nick. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks All so right. much for having me on. Cool.